Hey folks, this is John Lawrence, and I'm super excited to bring you this series of podcasts. I've collaborated with a couple of DNP students out of Marion University, and they have uh, brought you six educational podcasts on the fundamentals of anesthesia. And I'm so excited to get this out to you. We've been planning this for, I don't know, maybe close to a year, but uh, let me introduce them to you. So, I'm here today on the podcast with Skylar Ruschling. She is a second-year SRNA at Marion University in Indianapolis, Indiana. She attended Ball State University for her undergraduate education, where she earned her BSN in 2013. Skylar went on to work in the medical ICU at a level one trauma center in downtown Indianapolis for five years before returning to school to complete her doctorate of nursing practice degree. She is expected to graduate in May of 2020. And Ashley Scheel is also a second year SRNA at Marion University. She earned her BSN from Purdue University in 2012. Ashley worked as a nurse in the surgical ICU at the Radebush VA Medical Center in Indianapolis for six years before going back to anesthesia school. She is also expected to graduate in May of 2020 with her DMP degree. Uh, Skylar and Ashley, welcome to the podcast. Hey, John. Thanks. Hey everyone, I'm Skylar, and yeah, we're actually part of the inaugural class of um, the first nurse anesthesia program to open in Indiana. Um, so we're on track to earn our DMP degree, and in order to fulfill this degree, we're going to be completing a research project. So ours is titled "Podcasts as a Learning Adjunct in Nurse Anesthesia Education." Hey everyone, it's Ashley here. We became interested in this topic because we found ourselves listening to a lot of podcasts while driving to and from clinicals, and we thought it would be beneficial to be able to listen to foundational anesthesia content geared specifically towards SRNAs. Um, We're going to be measuring the satisfaction of SRNAs within our own program, but we really do hope that these podcasts help other SRNAs and CRNAs as well. Uh, We really want to thank you, John, for allowing us the opportunity to host our podcasts on From the Head of the Bed. Hey, I am so pumped about this. I think you all have done a really good job developing the content, and I can't wait to bring these episodes to people. So let's cut to the chase. Let's get to the shows. All right. Well, Skylar, we're back talking again about volatile anesthetics. Uh, What's the angle that you want to share with us this time? All right. Um, So today we're going to talk about the pharmacodynamics. and the pharmacodynamics, it's the physiological and biochemical mechanism of action of drugs. So we're gonna cover a lot of info today and some of it might feel a little disjointed. There's a lot of different topics, but uh, we'll get through it all together. And hopefully by the end, you have a little better understanding of what the pharmacodynamics of the volatiles are. That sounds great, I'm pumped about it. All right, so we'll start off talking about MAC. And if you listen to the previous podcast on the pharmacokinetics, I said that we were going to go into MAC a little bit um, more in depth in this one. So we'll start off talking about those concepts. And again, MAC is the minimum alveolar concentration. So it's defined as the concentration where 50% of people will not physically respond to a painful stimulus. And it's expressed as a percentage of one atmosphere. We also talked about oil gas solubility in the last podcast and how it's inversely related to the MAC. So oil gas solubility is, again, um, related to the potency of an anesthetic. And so if you have an increased potency or an increased oil gas solubility, you're going to have a decreased MAC value and vice versa. And the concept of this, um, the potency and the MAC value, it's based on the Meyer-Overton rule. And that rule is that the more lipid-soluble an agent is, the more potent it's going to be. 
And this is kind of part of the old way of thinking on how anesthetics work. So there's the old way of thinking, which is the unitary hypothesis. And there's a new way, which we'll get into a little more in depth um, in a minute here. But the old way, um, the unitary hypothesis, it suggests that all inhalational anesthetics have a similar mechanism of action, but they just work at different sites. And the Meyer-Overton rule supports this by saying all inhalational anesthetics work by altering the lipid environment of the proteins, and therefore it changes the protein's functions. And the new way is based on agents binding to specific proteins to alter their function. Um, so we'll go over the MAC values of the volatiles. And again, they're, they're going to be different in whatever source uh, you're looking at. These were pulled from Nagelhout. So SIVO is 2. Isofluorine is 1.15. It has the lowest MAC because it's the most potent. Nitrous is 105. It has the highest MAC. And um, that's because it's the least potent. And desfluorine is 5.8. And while we're talking about MAC, I want to talk about um, a concept that confused me when I first started clinical. And this is the relationship between the MAC and the concentration that you're setting your dial to on the vaporizer. So what you're, when you're setting your um, dial, you're setting it to a percent. This is the percent of one atmosphere like we talked about with MAC. And so it's the concentration, and then the MAC is the concentration of each volatile agent that 50% of people will not respond to the painful stimulus. So for each volatile anesthetic, that's going to happen at a different concentration or percent because of their difference in potency. So that's why they all have the different MAC values. For example, we can talk about sevoflurane. If you're running SIVO and you have the dial set to 2, this means that the sevoflurane is at 2%, which for SIVO is 1 MAC. If you were running your patient on desflurane and had the vaporizer dial set to 6%, you're running the patient slightly above 1 MAC um, because for desflurane, the MAC is 5.8. Um, so that's how the two are connected. The higher that you go on your concentration, it's going to be a different, uh, higher MAC value. So if you ran your SIVA at 4%, you'd be running the patient at 2 MAC. So um, I, I just got confused with that when I first started clinical. Um, I didn't realize that the concentration and the percent and the MAC were all related in that way. And I, I think I actually thought when I had the dial set to two for sevoflurane that it meant it was a MAC of two, but then I, I connected it all. So hopefully that this helps anyone just getting ready to start clinical, um, that relationship between the um, concentrations and the MAC values um, and how they're related. And there are other MAC parameters. Yeah, Skylar, uh, let me, let me jump in there real quick before you move on. Yeah, I, I think, I think that breakdown is really important. I've seen other sRNAs make that assumption. One other level that is, is interesting to think about to take this a step further in terms of what your dial is set is to remember that MAC value is the in title concentration that your patient is exhaling of the anesthetic gas. So not to confuse folks, but there's what you set the dial to, and then there's what is actually exhaled by the patient, and they're not always the same, uh, or even inspired, right? So you, you would think if you set the dial at two for sevoflurane, that the inspired sevoflurane level would be two. Uh, and then your exhaled would be probably a little bit less than that due to uh, the uptake of sevoflurane into the bloodstream. Uh, but remember that when you set the dial, these dials on different anesthesia machines, they can be off a little bit in terms of their calibration. So remember the practical operative level that you're looking for is the end title 
expired level of the anesthetic gas. So for sevoflurane, if your end title is two, then you're at one MAC as you described. A half MAC of sevoflurane would be an end title level of one. But again, that can vary wildly from what your vaporizer is set to. You know, a, a couple machines that I've worked with in the past, I'm setting my, I have to set my sevoflurane dial at three or 3.5 to get an end title value you know, that is close to two, you know, I might be at like 1.6, 1.8 or something like that, but I'm looking at my dial and it's set all the way up to like 3.5. And that's just due to the calibration being off within the machine. So remember that the operative value that you're working off of is what is the end title level of the volatile anesthetic and that those Mac values vary for uh, the different volatile anesthetics as you, as you described. So that can be a little tricky when you're thinking about it when you're just getting started. But once you sit down and, and think about it, and once you start playing with it in the OR, it will make a lot more sense. Right. Yeah, that's a good point to make. It's you know important to not just look at your, what your vaporizer is set to, but look at all your numbers, look at what your monitor is telling you, look at your patient, how are they responding. And like you said, yeah, it may um, be something with the calibration, something's off. So important to look at the whole picture. And so, like I said, there's other MAC parameters. Um, so these are MAC awake and MAC bar. And the MAC awake is the MAC at which 50% of people will respond to a command like open your eyes. And that's going to happen at about one third of your MAC for whatever volatile agent you're using. And MAC bar is the MAC necessary to block adrenergic response to skin incision. And that's usually about 1.6 MAC. And there are factors that increase your MAC and those are young age, hyperthermia, hyperthyroidism, hypernatremia, acute administration of a central nervous stimulating drug, red hair, and chronic alcohol abuse. And so when I say that something increases the MAC, it means that you'll have to turn up your concentration or percent on your dial to achieve the same effects that you would at um, your regular one MAC value. And factors that can decrease your MAC are increased age, hypothermia, administration of sedative hypnotics, co-administration of other anesthetics, alpha-2 agonists, opioids, acute alcohol consumption, hypoxemia, hyponatremia, anemia less than 4.3, hypotension of MAP less than 50, pregnancy, and also lithium. So then if we say that something decreases your MAC, it means that you'll achieve one MAC effects at a lower concentration or percent on your dial. And then there are factors that have no effect on MAC at all, and that's your duration of anesthesia, gender, hyper or hypercapnia, hypo or hyperkalemia, and hypertension. So earlier I talked about the old way of thinking on how inhalational anesthetics work, and now we'll go over the new way a little more in depth here. So the new way of thinking, again, it's that agents are binding to specific proteins to produce an effect. And the sources contradict each other a little bit on which receptors work where. But uh, according to Nagelhout, the targets for inhalational anesthetics are most likely the tandem pore potassium channels, voltage-gated sodium channels, NMDA receptors, glycine receptors, and GABA-A receptors. And the mobilizing effects of inhalational anesthetics involve modulation of ion channels, reduced spontaneous action potential firing via glycine, effects on the GABA-A and NMDA receptors, and depression of the motor neurons. And I know that sounds like a, just a big jumble of sites and receptors, but the takeaway from that is that inhalational anesthetics work by binding to a specific protein that will alter an ion channel or stimulate or inhibit a receptor. 
and the actions not only related to its lipid solubility like it was previously thought to be. And the anesthetics work at different sites in the central nervous system, and those sites produce different effects. So, for example, amnesia, um, that effect is produced in the hippocampus, amygdala, and neocortex. Unconsciousness is in the cerebral cortex, thalamus, and reticular formation, and immobility is at the spinal cord. So um, we've covered kind of those in-depth concepts there of the um, how, how actually the anesthetics work are acting at the cellular level. So now we're just going to talk about the physiological effects of how inhalational anesthetics um, work on the cardiovascular system, the respiratory system, and um, the neurophysiological system. So we'll start off with cardiovascular. And the cardiovascular effects, they're all dose-dependent effects. Uh, Sevoflurane, isoflurane, and desflurane, they all reduce MAP, your cardiac output, and SVR in a dose-dependent fashion. And the mechanism for this is reduced intracellular calcium in the cardiac and vascular smooth muscle. And this um, causes depression of the myocardial contraction and dilation of the peripheral vasculature. Nitrous oxide, on the other hand, it activates your central nervous system and increases the SVR. So just to note, that one's slightly different there. And heart rate is increased for the volatile anesthetics overall. This is through antagonism of the SA node automaticity, modulation of baroreceptor activity, and uh, sympathetic nervous system activation via the tracheopulmonary and systemic receptors. So because of that tracheopulmonary uh, activation, Isoflurane and desflurane, they increase heart rate the most because they have a respiratory irritant effect. So that's going to cause an even more increase in the sympathetic nervous system activation. All right, so now we'll move on to the respiratory effects. And volatile agents, they have a dose-dependent effect on the tidal volume and respiratory rate. Tidal volume is decreased and respiratory rate is increased in that dose-dependent fashion. And another effect is that the response to CO2 is depressed. So this decreased response to CO2 causes the apneic threshold to be raised, and um, the apneic threshold being raised means that a higher PaCO2 is going to be required to stimulate that patient to breathe. So this is why hypercarbia it should be watched really closely during emergence because you want to ensure that the patient is not going to get hypercarbic or acidotic after you um, remove them from the ventilator. So a way to do this is to ensure that you don't have a significant end tidal residual bottle agent for removing the ventilator. So uh, like John said earlier, to make sure you're looking at that end tidal concentration um, before you remove them from the ventilator, and that way you can prevent any excessive hypercarbia um, from happening if, um, because this apneic threshold is raised, they're going to need that higher PaCO2 to stimulate their breathing, so you don't want this anesthetic to still be affecting that when they're removed from the ventilator and are therefore required to um, be breathing on their own. And then in regard to PaO2, volatile agents also suppress the hypoxic respiratory drive at as little as just 0.1 mac. And this is um, through depression of the carotid bodies. And even sub-anesthetic concentrations can affect these carotid bodies for up to several hours after surgery. So when this becomes a problem with the suppressed hypoxic respiratory drive is with patients who rely on that drive to stimulate their breathing. And this would be patients with emphysema who have depressed chemoreceptors or patients with OSA or a premature infant who are already at risk for respiratory depression. This is something you really want to think about with them. 
Um, something that you can do is uh, desflurane. It has the least effect on hypoxic respiratory drive, so it's a good choice for these patients so that their drive to breathe is not affected as much um, even after surgery um, in the PACI when those sub-anesthetic concentrations may be hanging around for a couple hours thereafter. Okay, so now I want to switch over to talking about issues with nitrous oxide. And when I was in pharmacology, I thought that I was just learning about all the reasons why not to use nitrous oxide. And so I want to preface this all by saying that although we're talking about some of the negative effects that nitrous oxide can have, there are still times when nitrous oxide is appropriate and a great agent to use. So keep that in mind when I go through all this. I, I don't want nitrous oxide to get a bad rap after <laughs> after going through all these different concepts. Yeah, that's great. That's so. great. And then maybe, yeah, maybe at the end we can talk about the ways that it can be beneficial. Okay. So nitrous oxide, it's 34 times more soluble than nitrogen. So the blood gas coefficient of nitrous oxide is 0.47 and nitrogen is 0.014. Um, that means for every one molecule of nitrogen that's in the space, 34 molecules of nitrous oxide can enter. So this causes expandable air cavities to um, increase in volume if nitrous oxide is being administered, or rigid air spaces can have an increase in pressure. So an example of an expandable air cavity would be like an air embolism. And if nitrous oxide is being administered, you can see an immediate increase in the volume of that air embolism. Pneumothoraxes, they can also have a two to three times increase in volume in five to 20 minutes. And acute intestinal obstructions can double in 150 minutes. And pneumoperitoneums can also be affected as well if nitrous oxide is being administered. And then for the rigid air spaces, this would be like an intraocular air bubble when sulfur hexafluoride is um, being used as an injection. And there can be a two to 18 millimeter mercury increase in the pressure in just 20 minutes and also intracranial air during intracranial procedures, that can have an impact on the ICP um, if the nitrous oxide is being administered during that time and um, tympanic membrane grafting as well. The middle, the middle ear pressure can increase one to seven millimeters of mercury in one hour. So um, in those small cavities, it, that, that change in pressure can make a big difference. And during those tympanoplasties where the middle ear is opened up, and the graft is placed, it'll create a closed space. And nitrous oxide administration during this time, it'll increase that pressure and actually cause the graft to displace. Or if um, the nitrous oxide is um, going throughout the case and then you discontinue it at the end, after the graft displacement, it can create negative pressure and dislodge the graft that way. So either way, and um, in these cases, you either want to avoid nitrous oxide entirely or you want to discontinue it before the graft is placed. If you're going to discontinue it before the graft is placed, you want to make sure that you allow enough time for a washout of the nitrous oxide. And um, typically, this is about 15 to 30 minutes, but also it relies on factors such as your alveolar ventilation and what your fresh gas flows are set at. But just ensure that if you're going to um, use it and then discontinue before the grass placement that you allow enough time for it all to be washed out. Also with nitrous oxide, it irreversibly inhibits B12. So this causes, um, it inhibits the synthesis of methanine synthetase, which is necessary for myelin formation and DNA synthesis. So if you have prolonged exposure to the nitrous oxide, this can cause bone marrow suppression peripheral neuropathies, and also teratogenic effects, which is why nitrous oxide should be avoided in pregnant women before their third trimester. And lastly, with nitrous oxide, 
It can also increase the pressure and volume in your equipment. So your ET tube cuff, LMA cuff, these can be affected. Um, you wanna try to check those pressures with a manometer and not just palpation. Obviously palpation is not gonna be as reliable as a manometer would. And also the tip of a pulmonary artery catheter um, can be affected with the administration of nitrous oxide as well. So just things to keep in mind, but again, don't let it deter you from using it in practice. It's still a great agent if this situation is right. Yeah, and I think I think some of the benefits of nitrous, it's a fast agent to use. The concentration effect and the second gas effect can help you in terms of your manipulation of other volatile anesthetics. Nitrous is less pungent than some of the other volatile anesthetics. So it's typically a the go-to inhalational induction agent for children. Nitrous is great in terms of its support of the cardiovascular system during a case. So if you're experiencing a lot of hypotension, being able to reduce the concentration of your other volatile anesthetic while adding on a concentration of nitrous around 50 to 70% essentially doubles the MAC value of the entitled reading of whatever else uh, you're running. So if your sevoflurane MAC is 2 and you were running nitrous at 50 to 70%, you could conceivably cut that down to around one and you would still be at a full MAC of gas, thereby potentially better supporting your cardiovascular system. And then lastly, I think most people tend to run some nitrous towards emergence and helping people emerge their patients more quickly by being able to cut down the concentration that you're running your volatile at. By adding nitrous, it's just gonna speed your whole emergence process. So. There are times to use nitrous, but then of course, as you very eloquently talked about, there are some specific considerations where we should avoid nitrous or at least uh, be aware of its effect on gas bubbles and that kind of stuff. Right, yeah, great. Thank you for all those examples. I didn't, I didn't wanna scare anyone away from using nitrous yeah, in yeah, the future. Yeah. All right, so now we're gonna switch gears a little bit and talk about the neurophysiological effects that uh, the volatiles can have. So. Sevoflurane, isoflurane, and desflurane, they all suppress cerebral metabolic rate in a dose-dependent manner, and they also have a direct effect on the vascular smooth muscle, which causes vasodilation. So a decreased cerebral metabolic rate, that'll cause vasoconstriction and decreases the cerebral blood flow, while the vasodilatory effect increases cerebral blood flow. So it's the balance between these two, the cerebral metabolic rate and the vasodilation, that determines the effects on the cerebral blood flow. And again, these are dose-dependent, so at 0.5 MAC, you'll have a decreased cerebral metabolic rate, which causes vasoconstriction and decreases your cerebral blood flow. At 1 MAC, the cerebral metabolic rate and your vasodilatory effects are in balance, and so the cerebral blood flow is unchanged. And then above 1 MAC, vasodilation is going to predominate and cerebral blood flow is going to be increased, which obviously this can lead to consequences uh, related to your ICP with the increases in cerebral blood flow and volume. This is going to be something you want to watch if there are any concerns with ICP levels. And then also with increasing doses, your cerebral autoregulation can become impaired and your cerebral perfusion pressure will then become dependent just solely on your blood pressure. And that's why you um, want to ensure that you don't have any significant hypotension because that can lead to decreased perfusion in the brain. And obviously, um, that would not be good in any um, neuro case or in general. Uh, and then nitrous oxide, on the other hand, it actually increases cerebral metabolic rate and cerebral blood flow. So it leads to even greater increases is in the cerebral blood volume and ICP levels. So if you're using nitrous oxide and ICP becomes a concern, 
can use mild hyperventilation or co-administration of a, another um, IV anesthetic, which can help to compensate for this increase in ICP, or you may just want to avoid nitrous oxide altogether if ICP becomes a problem. I think, again, in terms of neurophysiology with nitrous, to think about what case are you doing, is nitrous appropriate? So I know a lot of neurosurgeons, if you open the cerebral vault, you know, nitrous may be appropriate for a time, but then you need to cut off the nitrous, you know, probably a good half hour before you begin to close that space so that you've got adequate washout. And then therefore you're not having those changes that we talked about in terms of the air bubble and increasing the volume of that closed space. So nitrous may be appropriate in some neuro cases, but some of the neurosurgeons that I work with just request that we avoid it altogether. That way there's no chance that we would forget to turn it off in time prior to closure. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point to make. And lastly, I just want to talk about evoke potential monitoring. This is used when there's a possibility of neurological injury with a surgical technique that's being used. And evoke potential monitoring, it can monitor for ischemia in the spinal cord and the cerebral cortex as well. And there's a couple different types. Somatosensory evoke potentials, these are also known as SSEPs. They measure cortical response to peripheral stimuli and assess the posterior dorsal column of the spinal cord. And then there's motor evoke potentials, which are MEPs, and these measure peripheral muscular response to motor cortex stimulation in assessing the corticospinal tract. So all inhalational anesthetics produce a dose-dependent depression of evoke potentials, and when you're monitoring these, an increase in latency or a decrease in the amplitude is going to be indicative of ischemia, and the inhalational anesthetics cause both of these, so they obviously are going to disrupt the monitoring. So you want to avoid the inhalational anesthetics and use solely IV anesthetic technique because the IV anesthetics, they affect the SSCPs and the MEPs the least. And so they should be used as your primary anesthetic if evoke potential monitoring is required for the case. Uh, there is a little caveat to that. There's also evoke potentials that are called brain auditory evoke potentials or BAEPs. Um, these are the most resistant to anesthetic effects. So if you're um, using these for a case, any anesthetic type can be used, even the inhalationals. They're not; um, they're very resistant to the effects, so you're not going to see um, the increase in latency or the decrease in amplitude from the anesthetic that you're using with the BAEPs. Yeah, that's awesome. And Skylar, I just want to circle back to, you know, as we close out this conversation on pharmacodynamics, I think it was a really nice rundown. You know, we talked a lot about MAC early on and its effect in terms of how we use volatile anesthetics. And you mentioned the values, of course, MAC, uh, and then MAC awake, which is typically one-third MAC, and then MAC bar, which is 1.6 MAC. So for the SRNAs or anesthesia learners out there, these are important concepts to be familiar with from a theoretical standpoint. But remember that we use volatile anesthesia in conjunction with other agents that we're administering to patients. So most of us are very rarely doing an anesthetic case with just volatile anesthetics. So you're, of course, adding in other IV sedatives and anesthetics, analgesia, of course, from the IV pain medications that we give folks. And then you may or may not be using a neuromuscular blockade or paralytic specifically. So if you're giving a balanced anesthetic, you may be able to reduce your MAC value and your patient is still safely asleep with no concern of awareness under anesthesia. So just keep that in mind, especially in times of maybe hypotension related to the anesthetic levels that you're giving. I see a lot of 
anesthesia providers sometimes they're really concerned about reducing their MAC value because they want to make sure that the patient's asleep, but they've given this balanced anesthetic, the patient's paralyzed, they're struggling with the blood pressure. It's completely reasonable to reduce your volatile anesthetic uh, in order to better support the hemodynamics of the patient and your patient is still going to stay asleep. So these are all of you know, the interplay of both the science of the anesthetics and the art of the anesthesia. It's shifting from that theoretical understanding of the anesthetics to the practical application of them. But I think you've done a really nice job walking through uh, the pharmacodynamics today. Yeah, thanks for that explanation of all that. And hopefully um, this was helpful to the SRNAs and maybe CRNAs that are listening out there. And thanks for having me on the podcast. Sounds good. All right, Skylar, thanks so much.